My subject this morning is drowning in a sea of doubts. I received a phone call from a man who said recently, I've been trying to believe God, but I'm having a very difficult time. I'm afraid my faith is kind of faltering. I asked why, and he said that he had been unemployed for two years. I didn't ask why or anything, but he said that his wife just got laid off. He said that they used up all of their savings, and they were afraid that their daughter would have to drop out of college because they didn't have the money. And so this is what struck me in the conversation. He said this. I don't understand it. We have been tithing all these years. Now, I don't know how many years that was. All these years, and now our whole world is falling apart. I'm beginning to really doubt God. Over the years, I've heard many say that I try to believe. I I really do. I, I want to believe. I read the scripture. I go to church, and I really want to believe But somehow, I'm so confused about how God works. If God is all-powerful, if God is all-knowing, if God is all-loving, then why do things happen? I don't understand it. I mean, God could have prevented that accident. Couldn't he? God could have healed that disease, but why does God heal some and not all? And so they just come to the place where it just gets too confusing. And do you know that Christians who struggle with doubts about their faith almost never talk about it? Why? Because they are ashamed They are ashamed because they feel that as a Christian, they shouldn't have doubts. As a Christian, they just have to accept it by faith, and they they, they shouldn't be, be going through what they're going through, questioning everything, questioning God, questioning the creation, questioning all these things. It's easier to live a lie and fake confidence than to say, I'm struggling. I'm hurting. My world is fearful. I don't understand God. I don't understand myself. I don't understand what's going on. I feel paralyzed. And it feels like I'm drowning in a sea of doubts. I don't know if you can remember the first time that you felt free enough to talk to God honestly. I don't know if you ever came to the place that you were just tired of pretending, tired of all that religious jargon. I mean, we know how to start a prayer. We know how to end a prayer. Um, I remember the first time that I was invited to a, a fellowship down in the southern part of Washington, state of Washington, and there was a... Uh, a young pastor at that time, he now teaches theology today, but he was, uh, he was having the people in a circle 
having conversational prayer. I don't know if you've ever participated in conversational prayer or not, but it was my first time. And um, somebody would make, say, a sentence, and then somebody else would say something what's on their mind. But I don't know if you've ever came to the place where you decided that you're going to risk it and you're going to just sort of trust God and you're going to tell him who you really feel you are. Whether you feel that you're a phony, whether you feel that you're just walking and reading your Bible, carrying your Bible the right way and everything, and you're really not there. Well, if you have, if you've done that, if you confronted God and told him who you really feel that you are, now God feels differently about you, that's for sure, but God wants to hear how you feel about you. And so if you have done that, you may have felt, like I did in that conversational prayer, I thought, well, maybe I could learn to communicate like this. Before, my prayers were just biblical prayers, I guess. They weren't from my heart. I wasn't expressing how I really felt towards God or how I wasn't questioning Asking God how he felt towards me, I really didn't know. And too many Christians are locked up inside. And maybe it's because of the expectations that we had when we came to Christ. If you turn on your TV and you listen to the televangelist, you'll, uh, you'll get a taste of what confusion is. If we listen long enough and hard enough, the televangelist will tell us that it's up to you. Faith is, if you have faith, you can move mountains. If you have faith, you can become wealthy. The prosperity gospel is very popular today. This whole concept of you investing, you, you plant your seed and God will give you a hundred times more. I mean... Um, That'll become confusing to you when it doesn't happen. And then you'll start examining your life and figure, trying to figure out why it's not happening. And then you'll become paralyzed. This idea that God will protect us from all harm, whether you are being, bringing it on yourself or not, that he's still going to protect you. Man-made religion has beaten the Christian down. Some are now cynical. Many are in that self-protection arena. They may brag about being free from the bondage of religion, and yet they live in bitterness, and there is no, no healing when it comes to experiencing bad religion. When you accepted Christ, what was your motive? I'm sure we had mixed motives. Most of us were motivated by a desperate need in our lives. I certainly was. It was Christ reaching out to us. We didn't know it at the time. But because of our circumstances, whatever they were, whatever they are, when we reach out to Christ, it is Christ reaching us through those circumstances. And when we respond, which we all did here, we experience a new birth. You know, in Matthew 8, 16, there's a beautiful 
story here. When evening came, they brought to him, that was Jesus, many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word, the Bible says, and healed all who were ill. They came to Jesus, driven by pain, suffering, and fear, rather than a true love for God. But you know, Jesus never rebuked the blind man. He never said to him, you know, the bottom line is you're very selfish, is all you care about is your eyesight. And you're only using me to see if you can get it back. You'll notice that Jesus didn't say, you go back to your home, and when you have pure motives, you come to me, and I will heal you. No, the only issue was, these were hurting people, but they came to the right person. And the Bible proclaims in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Talking about our doubts, talking about our fears and dis discouragements, it can actually lead to strengthening our faith when we understand the process that God takes us through when we doubt. God begins a process of motivating us. It's through a period of time. We're going to find out that Peter went through this process that you and I are going through. Sometimes it takes a wake-up call. And sometimes it takes even tragedy in our lives before we reach the point where our values are the same as Christ's values. In John 6, the chapter where we read, where we, read we spent a whole sermon on it about Christ feeding the 5,000 plus, about Jesus walking on the water, about he gave words to the Jews as well as he gave words to the disciples. Seventy-one verses are in John 6. Seventy-one verses share with us the incredible miracles that Jesus performed and the words of eternal life. Jesus was emphasizing faith and not works. And all the Jews could think of to say was this is hard teaching. This is something we've never heard before. This is something that cannot be right. Something is wrong. Jesus was offering truth. But what they wanted was just outward drama. Jesus sought to change inward, to be changed inwardly. They wanted a hero. They wanted a Messiah that would come with an army. And when they didn't get what they wanted, the Bible says they turned their backs on Jesus. Then Jesus, he turned to his disciples and notice what he said here. So Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? He saw the multitudes rejecting him, turning their backs on him and walking away. And so he says to the twelve, 
The reason it spells out the 12 is because other disciples had turned their backs on Jesus. But he said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? And notice what uh, Peter said. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now this was Peter. Peter says, <clears throat> yes, you are the Holy One of God. I trust you. I believe in you. You are that God that we have been looking for. And just a short time after, he denied his Lord three times. But over time, Peter was going back to the convictions that he held when he first met Jesus. And no matter what life threw at him, he was ready. Now, sometimes we feel that we're drowning in a sea of doubts. There is no way, nowhere to go but to Christ. We can read the stories of the epistles of Peter that he wrote later. And it's to all those who are hurting, doubting, faith faltering. He reminds us of two important faith builders. One is our hope rests in the power of Christ's resurrection. And two, the promise of our inheritance which is eternal life. 1 Peter 1, 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. And then, <clears throat> in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, and if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Have you been through very stressful trials and tribulations? I think that most of us have. And we have, come to, we have come to the realization that most of us felt that we are drowning in a sea of doubt. And the Bible tells us to rest when we are in doubt, to rest in the power of the resurrection and be aware that we have eternal life. Then remember that as a Christian, a Christian is a person to whom Jesus is Lord, whether he is always aware of it or not. And sometimes we get confused. When Jesus said in John 6, 53, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. So here, Christ uses this metaphor to signify that just as bread is the most simplest and universal means of subsistence, 
so is Christ to the soul. But the real shock came when they heard him say, and drink his blood. You see, the Jews knew that that was blasphemy. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 12, 16, only you shall not eat the blood. You are to pour it out on the ground like water. And so the Jews, they felt that he was blaspheming. The Jews felt that this was the Jewish law, that he should not only substantiate, but that he should abide by. And so the Bible tells us they turned their backs on Christ. When they heard that, they did not understand that to eat his flesh and drink his blood means to appropriate by his life by faith. And that's what you and I are called to do, to appropriate his life by faith. What does that mean? It means that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It means that Jesus Christ has the power to heal, but he also has the power to forgive. And the records say that once he, once he said that, to eat his flesh and drink his blood, a huge majority of the crowd turned their backs, walked away, even some of his disciples. This morning we will partake of the Lord's Supper. Our question still remains the same. What does the Lord's Supper mean on this side of the cross? It means that we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It means that we believe that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world, that your sins are not only forgiven, but they are forgotten forever. It means that we believe by accepting Jesus Christ as Lord, that it's true what the Bible says, that we are complete in Him. The Bible says that we are blameless. The Bible says that we are perfect forever. It's believing what God says is true about us. That's what this whole thing is all about. At the Last Supper, Jesus breaks the bread. He passes it and says, this is my body which was given for you. Eat all of it. And then he passes out the wine and says, this is my blood which is shed for you. Drink it. Taking the Lord's Supper is reflecting on the Lord's love. The love that he's shown on the cross for each one of us. Taking the Lord's Supper is food. It is food for us. It is spiritual food. Christ is of little, no, a little or no value unless we believe what he says is true. In Galatians 2.20, the Bible says this. I have been crucified with Christ. Do you believe that you have been crucified with Christ? It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Do you actually embrace the truth that Christ lives in you through that new heart that he gave you? And at your deepest core, the Bible says that you are perfect forever. You are blameless you are everything that God says you are. He doesn't ask you to feel it. 
He asks you to believe it because it's true. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, I want us to look at one of the most amazing, comprehensive prayers in the entire Bible. It's found in Ephesians 14 through 21. The Bible says, For this reason I bow my knee before the Father. This is Paul speaking. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. From, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints which is the breadth and the length and height and depth, and to know the love of God Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, sometimes we read through Scripture and we don't really stop and, and get the impact here. The Bible says that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Do you believe this morning that you are filled Filled with the fullness of God. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit lives in you, but the Bible also says the Trinity lives in you. You have the fullness of God. You have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit gives us counsel. He gives us direction. He tells us, he, he, he tells us how to live out the abundant life. But do we believe that we have the fullness of God? Or do we believe that there's something lacking in our lives? That maybe I should study more. Maybe I should pray more. Maybe I should do this more. Maybe I should do that more. Is that where we're at? Or do we fully comprehend what God says is to be true? That he has filled us with the fullness of God. He has set us apart. We are everything he says we are. We don't feel it, and that's not where we're going. We're going on the basis of what he says is the true. We are everything that God says that we are. Paul begins with this beautiful prayer, and notice we're going to see how he finishes. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, there is a power that works within us. We should embrace that. We don't need to question it. It's something that is real in us. And then the Bible says in verse 21, to him be the glory to the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul begins his prayer with a solid a, a solid awareness of our truest identity in Christ. The inner man he talks about. And an absolute submission to the Father. He says, I bow my knees to the Father. It's an unconditional issue of lordship that dwells in the heart. The Holy Spirit. 
presence in our life, in our new heart, is an awesome way to go through life. If we believe it, it will strengthen us. It will give us power. It will give us an awareness of the love of Christ. I know when I was pastoring before, I used to ask the congregation at the end of the year, are you closer to Christ now than you were a year ago? Do you understand Christ better now than you did a year ago? Do we understand the love of Christ? We have a sense of it, but do we understand it? Well, we'll take a lifetime of trying to understand it. We won't have it down completely. It'll be a lifetime of understanding just how much he does love us. It's beyond knowledge. And it's be, we are being rooted and established in Christ's love. Knowing that you are filled with the fullness of God. It is through faith that the fullness of God is received.